You're listening to The Capital Table. Private capital markets have been evolving for many years, but never more so than in recent times. Take a seat at The Capital Table with leading experts discussing insights into the private equity and M&A worlds, and take away the knowledge you need to excel in a rapidly changing marketplace. We know this is one table you'll leave feeling full and satisfied. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of The Capital Table. Today, we're going to talk about the pandemic's impact on deal structuring and excited to have Adam Kalisoff with Ice Miller and Gary Anderson with Seward and Kissel with us today to get the legal perspective on deal structuring. And certainly with the pandemic, we all know there's been a lot of uncertainties, uncertainties with businesses, the economy, you know, what's been the impact on revenue? Is it sustainable? Is it, you know, going to go up? Is it going to go down? <laughs> Uncertainties around the economy and whether revenue is sustainable on a go forward basis and what has been the impact of the cost structure of the pandemic. So from a global view, uh, Gary, what are some of the impacts that you have seen in your practice on uh, dealing with the pandemic? Yeah, so thanks for having us, Steve. Um, and Adam, nice to be speaking with you again. Um, I, I think the the big takeaway from this, or maybe the high-level one, is that it's very important, and this should always be the case, but particularly even more so now, is to keep the focus on um, the, the real business issues that the parties are dealing with. And perhaps while there's certainly a role for uh, legal innovation and brilliance and all of that good stuff, uh, keeping the eye on the prize in terms of trying to manage the situation that the business folks find themselves with and provide value add that gets to that. I think sometimes lawyers get stuck in a paint by numbers mindset when it comes to deal making. Uh, there's an equilibrium in the marketplace with accepted variances on core terms, but ultimately many deals take the same form as those in the past. However, we lawyers need to keep in mind that in addition to the the part of the deal that is simply recording the property transfer, the main value add that we provide is identifying, quantifying, and allocating risk. As risk profile changes, uh, which is certainly a fair characterization of the pandemic, we need to reevaluate and potentially evolve the deal-making process with a heavy focus on assimilating and managing these risks and giving the business folks an ability to still execute on opportunities without having to essentially pause and wait for things to shake out where the risks are better known. And, um, you know, maybe that's a way to avoid a misstep, but it would also avoid the opportunity set that always presents itself when, uh, when these things happen. Yeah, those are great insights, Gary, and, uh, you know, good perspective to bring to the table. Uh, Adam, your view, again, from a global standpoint, as you look at your practice and how you and your clients have worked through the pandemic? Sure. Thanks very much, Steve, and and good to be talking with you again, Gary. Um, Maybe it's helpful to just set the backdrop a little bit. As Gary said, we're we're trying to deal with risk allocation um, at a time when businesses are also desperately looking for growth. 
And organic growth can be challenging in any time, especially during these times. And so growth through acquisition is very attractive. And growth through acquisition right now is also highly competitive. Um, a majority of the opportunities that we're seeing for growth through acquisition are being presented through competitive auction processes. And you've got traditional PE funds and you've got non-traditional buyers such as independent sponsors and strategics. And now you even have new market entrants like SPACs. So you've got this crowding into the marketplace, competitive processes, um, lots of liquidity. And the challenge is how does private equity or any buyer for that matter remain competitive in a competitive process, but avoid overpaying in an uncertain time um, and, and you know, with the, the backdrop of COVID risks? Um, there, there are a number of techniques, both legal and business, that we've been seeing in this environment. Uh, we've seen on the business side, we've seen much more, and we've been suggesting much more deliberate sequencing of diligence, uh, business diligence and financial diligence prior to really digging into legal diligence on transactions when, when we can structure it that way. Um, we're seeing much heavier reliance on market research, third-party customer and supplier-focused surveys conducted earlier in the processes, discussions with key customers and suppliers, and you know we're seeing an increased role of um, pause. We're, we're seeing an increase in the amount of rollover equity that buyers are requesting sellers retain as, as part of the business in an effort to 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 shift allocation in in, in those ways on, on the legal side just kind of as a backdrop we're seeing an ever expanding use of representation and warranty policies it's, it's really become the norm in most transactions now to have them even in lower middle market transactions which which we tend to define as EBITDA of three to 15 million. Um, and we're seeing a lot of expansion and representations focused on supplier and customer relationships. And in certain instances, even uh, pipelines or, or forecasts for, for new relationships. And then finally, we're, we're seeing an increased use of earnouts as a bridge to valuation gaps between parties. Yeah, those are great insights adam and i think we'll come back to a few of those topics and expand a little further but uh shifting perspective a little bit gary and and certainly in your practice you work with companies that are raising capital as opposed to traditional buyouts obviously you do both but you know my point being focusing on the capital raise process you know the state of valuations in this environment is certainly in flux and you know what what are you seeing how these companies are managing their dilution in a capital raise process? Right. So the first thing I'd say is all of Adam's points are very important to be understood by somebody who is looking at things from the company's perspective, because 
the best way to get deals done, particularly in a uh, frisky environment, but in any situation is to really understand what the drivers are from the, uh, in, in, this, in this case, the purchaser side, what animates their concerns, what um, principles go into their deal making and how they think about risk. And so anyone who's looking at, uh, um, at taking on money from a purchaser, whether it's a cash out transaction or growth equity, needs to be very mindful and thoughtful about why the folks on the other side of the aisle are um, entering into the transaction. But from the company's perspective, when they're raising capital, again, any circumstance, but it all gets put in sharper relief when we're dealing with something like the pandemic is, I'd, I'd say the two major concerns for a company raising capital are either not raising enough uh, capital and therefore having to pass the hat around again, without having achieved what the initial raise was contemplating to achieve, whether they're developmental goals, regulatory clearances, or otherwise, but then sort of its polar opposite, which is raising too much money at a lower valuation. And focusing on the second point, the pandemic created an environment where businesses needed capital to replace operating cash flow that dried up, or perhaps to build a war chest to make opportunistic investments or acquisitions of competitors, vendors, et cetera. But at the same time, because of pandemic factors and the huge questions around the eventual impact, um, valuations were adversely affected. And net, uh, companies were faced with raising sometimes large amounts of capital at inferior valuations, and that creates the potential for an intolerable amount of dilution or an unreasonable amount of dilution, however one looks at it. Um, the ways to deal with this are generally either some form of committed capital that would be funded based upon milestones, et cetera, essentially the same concept that Adam noted, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis earnouts and milestones, but applied for the company's benefit, um, or different approaches for repricing valuation upon the achievement of de-risky milestones. And these can take the form of um, adjustments to the purchase or to the price at which preferred equity converts, eligibility to participate in larger option pool, restoring equity that had been diluted, that's sort of on the growth equity side. And then um, things like what Adam pointed out in terms of uh, earnouts and such, if, it's, uh, if, if they're cash out transactions. Um, there are other approaches as well. Ultimately, however, the point is to structure something that recognizes valuation at the time of the investment may not reflect true value, but rather an allocation of, uh, in this instance, macro level risk. And as that risk is mitigated by macro factors, or even if it's just getting a, a better sense of what's really going on and the attendant uh, adjustment to perspective from a risk standpoint, some amount of repricing might apply. And obviously the investor would prefer to avoid repricing uh, but as long as the repricing isn't 100% restorative, they're still getting the opportunistic arbitrage that compensates them for taking the risk uh, that they're taking in the first place. And so it's, it's a tool of, as, as Adam, I think, very uh, well said, bridging valuation gap um, where a lot of those gaps come from um, known unknowns uh, or sometimes unknown unknowns and still having a way to move forward without getting paralyzed by uh, either information asymmetry or lack of information altogether. 
Yeah, that's great. And you both mentioned earnouts in in that discussion we just had. I mean, what are some of the more creative earnout structures you've seen? I mean, certainly private equity. That's a uh, an area that uh, some love, some hate. Uh, but certainly with the pandemic, I'm certainly seeing a lot more in the deals we're working on. So, Adam, what are some of the more interesting creative structures you've seen? Yeah, thanks, Steve, and, and thank you, Gary, for, for setting the stage so nicely with uh, the variety of, of, of different mechanisms for risk allocation. Um, it, it, in terms of creative structures, we've seen we've seen the traditional, you know, EBITDA and revenue based earnout structures. We've seen multi-year earnout structures. We've seen cost savings earnouts tied to specific projects or pieces of equipment or capital investments. Um, we've seen a much wider use of earnouts post-pandemic than, than we had for a number of years and really kind of a willingness on, on both the buyer and seller sides to embrace the fact that we're in an uncertain time and it's it's unfair to try to shift all that risk to one party or the other in terms of projected earnings um, so lots of creativity lots of of kind of custom created earnouts earnouts based on retention of of um, key customers, earnouts based on expansion of customer relationships. Um, kind of the sky's the limit in terms of where your imagination will take you with these. Yeah, that's great. And Gary, you mentioned a few uh, earnout structures, but what are uh, one or two other creative ones you've seen in this pandemic? Name um, as what Adam alluded to, ultimately it's a time when you see earnouts that move beyond the the conventional financial based approaches um, and go into things that are either uh, operational or have supply or demand qualities to them for example um, you know an ex a situation where a supply chain disruption to a business that had healthy demand necessitated taking on capital to uh, be able to afford to engage larger vendors that had greater minimum purchasing requirements, um, having the earnout apply when inventory was actually coming back online and um, the, its ability to re-engage with its customer base in a significant way, that in and of itself became the basis for an earnout. And so it really had nothing to do with uh, the financial results, so to speak. Uh, obviously, you know, selling inventory is an analog of a financial result, but um, it was really focused on something other than strict financial results because the concern in question was one of the supply chain and inventory builds. So really, you're just coming up with different ways to deal with situations where the risks are less financial and more operational, and in these instances, an earnout that is based upon traditional metrics of sales, EBITDA, et cetera, would simply miss the point of the piece of risk that the business folks are trying to manage. Yeah, those are great insights, Gary. So the pandemic has positively impacted the revenue streams of many businesses, and it's certainly been an interesting dynamic as we look at many 
acquisitions on the the buy side, working with our private equity clients. And again, the whole issue is 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 this sustainable? And while you can dig into that and in diligence and get some comfort, you know, in certain deals and very little in others, you know, ultimately buyer and seller have to agree on value and how that's going to look. So what structures have you seen to give value to the seller, yet protect the private equity buyer in these situations? And start with you, Adam. Thanks, Steve. Uh, much of what we've seen is is what we've already discussed in terms of um, rollovers and 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 earnouts and structures where um, we'll have holdbacks or deferred purchase price. We've seen structures where the purchase price is is set on on future earnings as opposed to trailing twelve months. Uh, we've seen lots of collars around adjustments, both positive and negative, to try to balance out the the risk between parties and transactions. Um, you know, we we've we've found that this is kind of a, a a time to be creative, as Gary had mentioned, and and innovative in approaches to addressing issues, and and depending on the buyers and the sellers. There's a very different view of of risks and risk tolerances in the marketplace right now. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so Gary, what what interesting other options have you seen deployed with this issue of uh, businesses that have been positively impacted by the pandemic, and will it continue? In in a situation where businesses have managed to hold up pretty well uh, operating results or even accelerated somewhat if they're in some of those industries that have seen major demand upticks. Um, buyers, when they come in, are worried that they are going to end up paying for a very specific amount of uh, increase based upon factors that may not. Um, be reliably expected to continue. And so what we're seeing are payments, uh, you know, we call them maintenance payments, but that's really just lawyers coming up with more names to describe earnouts to make it sound like we have new ideas. But in any event, you look at the run rate, for example, of a business at the time that a that a deal's coming together and you base their ability to get either additional payments or avoid repricing or some, you know, the application of some of the other tools so long as the business continues to operate at that level. And I think um, this, what's really happening here is it's not uncommon to see the business owners get a little over their skis in terms of talking their book about how their business is now doing very well, and this is going to stay that way for the future, and it's going to grow, et cetera, et cetera. And so the response to that, if you are on the buy side and you want to get a deal done, and that means you need to indulge the business owner to a degree, but you still want to manage that risk of overpayment, is saying, okay, if this really does happen the way you say it, then you're going to achieve or pardon me, realize um, this additional value, but if it doesn't, then these these additional payments wouldn't be made. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And certainly we've spent a lot of our time here talking about creative solutions and, you know, all that must mean it's been a really interesting time to work with your clients to solve problems. I mean, any insights into that, Adam, and, you know, thinking that through as, you know, we're still in the middle of the pandemic and somewhere on the back half, we hope, but, you know, there's more creative solutions to come as we keep working to the other side. Yeah, um, thank you, Steve. You know, feel very fortunate in a time when so many are um, having a, a, a difficult time coping in, in the business world to be able to be actively engaged in helping to problem solve for clients, um, helping to structure transactions. When the pandemic first hit, we were fearful that M&A as we knew it would come to a screeching halt because of the levels of uncertainty. But given the techniques and the willingness on both buyers and sellers to adopt them and the ability to be creative in structuring solutions, some of the solutions that Gary mentioned, um, we, we've been able to uh, handle a, a, a very robust volume of transactions and um, satisfy buyers and sellers and, and risk allocation strategies. Yeah, those are great insights, Adam. Gary, what are your thoughts on uh, this time period to work with your clients? Really very similar to what Adam was saying uh, and what we were touching upon earlier, which is it's an opportunity to really get to know what your client's business is and what exactly their goals for their businesses, whether you know that's from a, a buy side or sell side. And you, using that additional information you get um, to provide solutions that feel like maybe they're adding a little bit more value than just having the same squabble with the other lawyers about whether the cap is going to be 10% or 15% in an indemnification uh, policy. And so um, whether or not uh, our our advice is as valuable to the business folks as we lawyers like to think it is in terms of you know providing real business insight. Uh, that's always an open question, but to be part of the um, sort of the team and thinking through the biggest issues that our clients are wrestling with, and hopefully be able being able to provide some insight um, has has been extremely rewarding and. Uh, frankly, a lot of fun in probably the geekiest way possible, but nonetheless, that's how it is. Yeah, those are great perspectives on uh, practicing in these times. And again, this has been a great discussion on the pandemic's impact on deal structuring. Adam, Gary, thanks so much for joining us for this edition of the Capital Table. Uh, provide some great insights for the private equity community and other buyers and sellers. And uh, we look forward to everyone joining us on the next edition of The Capital Table. Thank you. You've been listening to The Capital Table. For more information, please visit witham.com. Thank you for listening.